You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and for this week's interview, we're talking with Randall Wilson, UX design lead on Capital One's digital messaging team in Chicago, Illinois, and co-founder of the Hue Design Summit. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Randall Wilson. I am a UX design lead for the digital messaging team at a little company called Capital One. I'm also a partner with a hip-hop archivist friend for a, a Lego group that we've called Most Incredible, and I am the co-founder of the Hue Design Summit. That's a lot. <laughs> Design lead <laughs> and Lego artist and Hue Collective, and I, I definitely want to touch on all of that stuff. I want to start with Capital One. Um, Capital One actually even sponsored the show back in February, so thank you, Capital One, for that. Tell me about the work that you do there as a design lead. So in digital messaging specifically, what we're concerned with is obviously the messaging touch points that Capital One uses to reach out to their customers. So obviously all of the lines of business that Capital One has, you know, bank, card, COAF. Where I work is in the partnership space. So companies that Capital One has private label credit card relationships with. So we consult with internal creative teams and all the different cross-functional teams to create messaging experiences that are relevant and personalized for the customer. And what does that messaging look like? Is it just email or or are there sort of different touch points where you are interacting with the customer? Email is the message du jour always, but we also include, you know, SMS and push uh, depending on how the customer chooses to receive their message. And now you've been at Capital One for a long time. I mean, eight years is like a lifetime to be at one place in this industry. I'm really curious to know what attracted you to them as a company. Well, first, I I have to uh, provide a little bit of context into obviously how I got there, but where I came from. So graduated from Georgia Tech in 2009 and was working odd jobs here and there and actually got to Capital One through a staffing agency. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I didn't even know what the company was, well, who the company was until I got to the interview and realized it was Capital One. And I hadn't had too much knowledge of Capital One up to that moment. So I actually started there contracting. And then throughout my years there, you know, I realized that this is, it's not your typical corporate environment as, as you might imagine mm-hmm. a corporate America office to be, or uh, just the demeanor or how people exhibit certain behaviors um, is really laid back. So that's what I like about it. It's it fits my personality and more specifically the team that I'm on, the way we communicate and the way that we work with each other, I think really attracted me to well and kept me here. Mm-hmm. So I started and on September 12th, 2011. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's quite a day yeah. to start work. <laughs> that is that's quite yeah. a momentous day to start start a new job. Yeah, I remember getting the interview and and I got the job, but I had requested to start after Labor Day, so I got the interview in maybe July, like uh-huh. end of July. Um, I actually went back recently and found the email and screenshot it just to keep uh-huh. it for history's uh-huh. sake, for posterity, um, and requested them to like, can I can I stay in Atlanta for until after Labor Day to have a going away party? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I did that and then started drove up from Atlanta, started September twelfth, two thousand eleven, and it's been on and popping from there. Nice. So you mentioned email, you mentioned SMS. Can you talk just kind of generally like what kind of projects you're working on right now? The type of projects that we're working on, they range from, I guess, welcoming customers to their registering or signing up for a credit card, providing benefits, benefit information about the card, providing information on, you know, how many, how much rewards they've they've attained mm-hmm. through usage of the card. So the other projects that we have, are trying to figure out what's what's the best 
I guess, in the ecosystem of messaging and how the customer uh, communicates with Capital One, what has the customer chosen as their preferred mode of communication? And how can we reach them without confusing them on their journey to, you know, maybe pay the balance on the card or uh, find out how many rewards they have or any like auto loans they may have signed up for. So making sure that the information that we've delivered to them is precise, concise and has great timing. Now, I would imagine with, you know, between email and SMS, there probably is a lot of testing that you all have to do to make sure that the the text is coming off like in the right brand voice, that it's, you know, the right tone, that it's actually accomplishing what it is you want to accomplish. Is there a lot of testing that goes into all of this? There is. Um, we obviously use uh, not only user research in the form of testing that way, we, we make sure that the not only is the brand voice consistent, but that it's able to be absorbed mm. and, and is, again, relevant and speaks to that particular moment that the customer is in in their journey. Actually, you know, uh, maybe a couple weeks ago, I was in New York doing said uh, user research just to make sure that anything, well, the, the experience of messaging is is what they're used to from a financial services standpoint. Mm-hmm. What what makes sense from a institution like that? What are they used to? What, you know, turns them off? And we use that to craft the the messaging that we offer. Interesting. I wonder if I mean you can, you know, correct me here. I would imagine that also goes into maybe like automated types of messaging as well, like say for example, voice or anything like that. Um, if you're referring to something like Eno, yeah, is that what you're kind of getting around? Yeah. Um, yeah, we partner with them a lot um, and make sure that that's also built into the ecosystem. Not only, again, email and SMS, but if the touch point is interacting with Eno in either, you know, in the on the phone or in the browser, that they're getting what they need when they want it. What's been the most challenging part about the work that you do? The most challenging part of the work that we do, I think, would be, I think, the the innovation part. I think what we're always looking for, forward to doing is being on, you know, it's, it's kind of like a buzzword, but on the cutting edge, the bleeding edge even mm-hmm. on of, of messaging. So we're always looking to make sure that what we have and what we have to offer our partners is is top of the line in terms of the latest developments in email and SMS and push. I'm looking across the industry, making sure that we pick up on trends that uh, are emerging mm-hmm. and obviously let go of trends that are falling away. So I think the challenging part is staying on top. Um, it almost sounds like I'm bragging, but <laughs> <laughs> but but just making sure that we that we keep abreast of any new development so that we can if there's a solution that one of our internal customers is looking to offer for their customers, we can say, hey, like we have that. Or if we don't have it, we can offer a similar solution. And I would imagine with, you know, email is pretty old. SMS is pretty old. I would imagine like that innovation probably is hard to come by. Because these are mediums that people have used for a long time and they already have certain expectations about not just how to use and understand it, but also what's to be expected from, say, like a different the, the difference between, say, getting messaging from a friend than getting messaging from a bank. You know, mm-hmm. like I would imagine there's kind of like a fine line you have to tread to make sure that you're, you know, you're not pissing the customer off or or giving the wrong impression or anything like that there's always the conversation about convenience over creepiness mm, right yeah. what is that line right like how I, I making sure that the the message is again i use the word relevant a lot but it's relevant enough but that it's not so big brotherish mm-hmm. right that's the that's the line and just in terms of i guess the function of email itself Email is is coming a long way. It's very niche. I kind of backed into it <laughs> as a career. Um, it's not something that people go to school for, right? Like I want to be an email designer. Let me go <laughs> get. A, let me go major in that. But what I've learned is that email is is it has more than people give it credit for. It's always kind of looked at as like the little brother of web design or mm-hmm. web development. But you can do almost just as much in email and offer. Uh, similarly robust experiences in email, just as you can in web. 
I mean, email design has come a long way. I I, mm-hmm. I remember designing emails in, God, what year was that? 2005, 2006? Yeah. And I mean, the email design landscape, and, and I would imagine it's probably gotten better now because I haven't designed an email and I don't know how long, but it was trash back then. Like between <laughs> Gmail and the different versions of Outlook. And then yep. we had customers who were still using Lotus Notes and Domino. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it mm-hmm. would be impossible to serve up the exact same visual experience via email across such a wide variety of clients. I, I can only imagine now that it has gotten a lot better just because of uh, of browsers and you know advances in CSS and stuff like that. Yeah, we uh, instead of coding for graceful degradation, we code for progressive enhancement. Nice. So we serve for the lowest common denominator. You know, you're well, we don't serve Lotus Notes per se, but older things like maybe Thunderbird or, Uh you know, the older outlooks. Um, And then on top of that experience, we add uh, as many interactive uh, and personalized uh, experiences as we can that the client will you know, read. Yeah. So, uh, you know, getting, getting Gmail and Outlook and let's see like Yahoo or AOL and getting all those things to agree and look the same, like you'll never do it. Yeah. And communicating that to our partners and saying, Hey, you know, this email that you want to deliver, this is the base experience, but we can do X, Y, Z that will add to the experience. But the people that are on those older clients, they won't be missing any information. The core of the message will still be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, oh my God, I'm just having flashbacks about how bad it used to be trying to design for all of those different types of, of uh, environments. I mean, shout out to, shout out to Litmus because they really kind of helped me out a lot with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were they like image-based emails that you were working on? They were mostly image-based. So at mm-hmm. the time, I was working for the Georgia Dome, and we were sending out email newsletters to um, the executive members that like had bought season tickets and bought you know box seats and all that sort of stuff. So we would have these long kind of image. Ba- and I mean, this is 2005, so we're talking 2005 design standards in terms of <laughs> very blocky table. Ba- I mean, emails are still table based, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Kind of blocky table based emails, mm-hmm. and it was, it was a wreck. The the other thing talking about image based emails, we also make sure that accessibility is is of high uh, priority because the I, I would say that the the time of image based emails is is past is long gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to reach you know as many customers as we can, we have to be as accessible as possible. So that's HTML text, that's high contrast images, that's uh, large enough buttons, that's clear calls to action. All of that stuff goes into it. Nice. Now, what would you tell anyone out there who's listening to all this and they might be interested in working at Capital One? What would you tell them? I would say that Capital One, uh, Capital One's transition into more of a technology space is exciting for me, number one, because I hadn't had any connotation of any financial institutions before. And so to be a part of one of the the leading financial institutions in the in the in the country and knowing that we have buy in from our leaders to push forward and use new things and try new things and failing fast is something that I enjoy working under the conditions working under and just having a leadership that advocates for that and and has you know we have process out the wazoo which protects you know all of our work and the the concepts that we work on and things that we do here I would say if you're looking for (laughs) if you're looking for a place that is always trying to do not what's new, but what's not yet new, like what's coming. You should come you should come over to Capital One. Nice. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk about the Hue Design Summit, which is how I first heard about you. Um, and it just took place recently. It just took place uh, back in July. I want to go into that. But before we do that, I want to talk more about your background and sort of how you came up to where you are right now. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Atlanta area uh, in Stone Mountain, Lithonia. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, was design kind of a big part of your childhood growing up? 
The first memory of my life, literally, is waking up in my parents' bedroom, probably on a weekday morning or something. I was four years old in my white T-shirt and my tidy whities <laughs> and, <laughs> and running out of the bedroom and going into the dining room where I think the Lego set that I was playing with had been left uh, the night before. So ever since I can remember, design has been a part of my life. And was your family really supportive of that? Yeah, I have like a lot of different interests. You know, I like not only Lego, but I, I love music. I love film. I love sports. I love spades. I love traveling, all types of different things. And so my parents were uh, willing to foster that love of all those interests. But, you know, the design, you know, not only Lego, but drawing, like coming up with my own like comics. I remember something I made a long time. Well, maybe like seven, eight, nine years old called the Wiley Warriors because I was watching Power Rangers a lot, <laughs> you know, just getting getting busy with with color pencils and crayons and construction paper and all of that. That's something that I've always loved to do and provide an escape from, you know, the responsibilities I have and had, whether they be English math, social studies, or, you know, <laughs> what I'm doing, <laughs> what I'm doing at work. So it's always been a part of me. Okay. When did you know that this was something that you could make a career out of? I'd probably say in high school, there were a couple of different diploma tracks. And one of them was tech, more tech based, because I was looking to get into architecture as a major in college. And so that was the diploma that would be most uh, appropriate. So being in something like shop class, but being in art class and really uh, growing those competencies, I think I had an eye towards the future and seeing how that would manifest itself through my major in architecture. So I think around high school, I'd say. All right. And you continued that that sort of uh, interest in architecture by going to Georgia Tech where you majored in architecture. What was your time like there? My time in at Georgia Tech was... I don't know if any other architecture majors can relate. Maybe it's just my experience. But architecture was really, that major was kind of isolating hmm. in that I couldn't just go to the library where my other friends with different majors were studying, right, with their textbooks. Like I had to be in the studio all the time because that's where our tools were. You can't, you can't just pull up vellum on your desk in your dorm and like start <laughs> drawing elevations and sections. Like that's not going to fly. So being in studio all the time, although I didn't get to spend as much time with my friends, I did get to spend a lot of time with my studio classmates. And so that provided another flavor in that I got to broaden my friend circles. So, you know, I have I have, I've have the friends that I've that I made from, you know, outside of studio, but also hanging out with people inside. And also, in addition to just the social scene, really learning guess the history of architecture and art. That's something that I enjoyed a lot. Mm -hmm. Having the freedom to not only learn about it, but interpret it and infuse that knowledge into your own work and designing insight. And I think this is where some of that, some of those competencies translated over into my career today, designing for people within context and learning what is necessary for the specific site in which you're building something or designing something, you know, doing light studies, doing soil studies, learning what I guess the surrounding elevation is like. If you want to contrast with that or do you want to fit in like all of those things? I learned a lot from being at Georgia Tech. Hmm. And now what was sort of the Atlanta design scene like for you back then? I mean, and I don't know how much of this, you know, being an architecture major were you were you able to sort of go to meetups and events or network with other people or anything like that? Because at the time I was still in architecture, I was not aware of any other like architecture related meetups outside of Georgia Tech. Mm. There was there was things inside like uh, NOMIS, I think the National Organization for Minority Architecture Students. Mm -hmm. So I was involved in that for a little bit. But Towards the end of my majoring, I started transitioning over into, you know, doing uh, graphic design. So whether that be flyers or logos for different organizations on campus, even that journey was a little bit solitary because I was, I guess, getting my feet wet into it. And so I would converse with other 
designers on campus, but I never got the chance to really spread my wings and get into the Atlanta design scene. That was around 2004 to 2009, 10, somewhere around there. Okay. And now, is this sort of where the idea for forming the Hue Collective came from, or did that come later? I was listening to Shaw Struthers' interview earlier today and was listening to how, you know, how you got into that. That idea did not come until 2016. Okay. We just so happened to go to school together and kind of overlap. But, you know, through through the advent of social media, right, we've been able to keep in touch in those intervening years and, you know, join that group me that he was talking about. And then the idea formed from there. Okay. I was curious about how it formed, especially uh, with you saying that your your architecture experience at Georgia Tech was kind of isolating and then you weren't really kind of networking or seeing other design groups outside of that. I wonder, and you can, you know, fill me in here, did the want to create the collective kind of come from that experience of, of sort of going through this design discipline in a very isolated manner? Something like that. I can tell you that through being in the different neighborhoods in Atlanta, and again, learning to design within context, there is a lot that you see. There's a lot of small businesses that you see. And as I was getting into design, I would realize that, you know, people's branding may have not been the best Mm -hmm. or uh, just, just just the front, right? Just the front of the business that they want people to come in and obviously use the services um, wasn't as appealing as it could be. Another colleague, not only in Hugh, but in architecture, Alfonso Jordan, he was in architecture uh, at the time. Uh, He was coming through maybe a year after me. So uh, we kept in touch all those years. And actually how we got together was maybe around 2014, 2015 and discussed doing something like forming an agency and using our talents to provide branding and strategies and material for said businesses that we saw, you know, in our neighborhoods, a lot of these black owned businesses. And so the the idea came from that. And then Alfonso knew Tiffany from another venture. And she's the one that brought up the idea of something like the summit. Mm. And so all three of us came together and decided to lean more into the summit experience, less so the agency. And so that is how the Hugh Collective was born. Interesting. And there's actually someone else I saw on the uh, Hugh Collective About page who has also been on the show, Michael Grant. Yes, sir. How'd you end up linking up with him? Michael Grant comes through Tiffany's connections. Okay. I want to say that he was also in the group me chat that Shaw was mentioning. So I know him very kind of like a by by proxy. Okay. You know, like a couple couple degrees removed. But he's been essential to us in the way of storytelling because he's a is a writer Mm -hmm. so he's been able to gather i guess the history not only the history of hugh but how we talk about it how we describe it um the language that we use michael's been helpful in in solidifying that and making that clear uh, as we move forward so let's talk about the hugh design summit which just passed uh in july uh, you spoke about how the collective came together and how sort of the sparks for the summit came about. When did the first summit begin? And then I want you to talk about how it's grown through this year. The first summit began in late July of 2017. As you've heard before, we wanted it to be designed as an unconference. So the word that I use a lot is introvert friendly. Um, so not as overwhelming as those spaces can be. I go to conferences all the time. I'll continue to go to conferences. Uh, What we wanted to do is offer a complimentary experience to those so that people can experience both as they so choose. Uh, We were we've been in Atlanta all three years. As we've learned through the planning, we've been able to articulate better the experience. And so because of that, uh, more people are coming. So last year we had around 25, 30 people sign up. And then this year we had almost 50 sign up and and. Adding, you know, not only the collective, but all the uh, speakers and special guests that we invited, it came to be around 60. So the last couple of years, we've been in the Howard House in Kirkwood, Decatur. And so that's provided a, a more homey experience that is in line with what we want to deliver. I've heard it described by somebody at the summit unprompted that 
The summit is a conference, a family reunion, a cookout, and a camp at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good. That's a good mix of experiences to have, though. Mm-hmm. And it takes. Yeah, and how how long does it take place? The summit that takes place from Thursday evening to Sunday morning. So we start with a welcome dinner on Thursday evening to uh, begin the experience, so that people are getting to know each other without the lens of design, not just asking, you know, what do you do? Where are you? But like asking what they're into, you know, what drives them, you know, what stuff that has nothing to do with design are you into? So we can start the experience off like that. So by the time we start getting into the content, we've done the networking or getting to know each other part. And then we can absorb the content as we so choose, because not only do we put it on for y'all, we put it on for us, too as the collective, like I get just as much out of it as people that come. Mm -hmm. So that that part has been most rewarding, having people come and say that they not only get the value out of the content, but out of getting to know everybody. Like I know who Tahia is. I know who Teresa is. I know who uh, Naeem is. I know who Steven is. I know who Chanel is. Like all of these names, like I know these people because I've been able Mm -hmm. to speak to them and have one-on-one experiences that I can come away with and say, hey, you remember this? And not just, you know, reach out to them randomly on LinkedIn and they barely know who I am. Yeah. Why is it important for y'all to structure the event in that way? When we talk about building community, we talk about it in the way of quality over quantity. Um, I think there are different ways to solve the same goal. So also in our, in our, I guess in our roadmap, we talk about complimenting a lot. So we have a lot of different, there are a lot of different, you know, organizations and groups that are forming these pockets of communities. Mm -hmm. We're not coming, we're not trying to come in and say, yo, we're going to create one and that's it. Like we just want to add two. So what we're focused on is making sure that you have the opportunity to, you know, get to talk to somebody and build upon that relationship in a meaningful way. Be that, you know, a a project that you're working on outside of work, a job reference that may come up later, any anywhere in that spectrum. That's what's important to us um, and creating the experience to where you're not being just talked at, but you're being mm-hmm. engaged with. And you all have had some pretty big, like heavy hitters in terms of guests. I mean, last year you had Gail Anderson. This year you had Eddie Alpara. You had Renee Reed. All these people have also been guests on the show. What do you think it is about the summit that attracts them? I think because it is, it's atypical of probably the experiences that they're used to being on the speaker circuit. Mm -hmm. I can't speak obviously to what they've experienced, but I would assume that something like this, which I also don't want to say has never been done before, but the way that we're doing it is such that they're able to like reach out and touch. Mm Mm-hmm us they'll reach at the reach out and touch the attendees that come and and talk to them because not only are the attendees speaking to one another they're also having these maybe roundtable discussions or these one-on-ones with a gail with an eddie with a renee with an owen um oh that's right owen was there too owen michael Hammond, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and i met him in may at a diversity and design conference in dc oh yeah so that was i went for work and so that was fortunate that i was able to introduce myself a couple months before the summit i would say that them being in a room with a lot of uh, black designers in cases where they may not have been able to do that before is probably what's enticing to them Mm -hmm. can you give just a recap of of what happened this year like you mentioned the three speakers now but how did it go overall you, you'd appreciate this. You're from Atlanta, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. No, I mean, I'm, that. I'm, I'm from Alabama, but I've lived here for 20 years. Okay, so yeah, you're from here. Close That's enough. Cool. I'm from yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, you're good. Yeah. So if I had to illustrate it, I would use Outcast Players Ball, but in a different context. Okay. If you remember the lyrics, it went, the scene was so thick, L dolls, nothing but them lax. <laughs> <laughs> like a black can't happen here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So like in that in that skit, there's there's emotions of Yeah, all like, all the disbelief. players, all the hustlers. Yeah, all the hustlers, yeah. right? There's there's emotions of like disbelief, bewilderment, but also relief, right? Like being in a space 
that you haven't been in a lot or in your career where all you're surrounded with are, is with designers and creatives of color. Um, and so that having to take off a lot of that stuff um, and just simply exist in a space and not only use the design language that you've accrued throughout your career and in your education, but also the shorthand that we use with each other and combining those in our communication is mm. is how people have come to to experience the summit and love it for what it is because of those things. Yeah. So I would say the summit was it was a big like love fest. OK, there's there there's people that maybe before even the first day was over said they love the energy it's the best conference they've ever been to. Can't wait to come back. This is the best that they've ever been taken care of. I will say, <laughs> if I had to tell another anecdote, um, last year, uh, Gail Anderson was there, right? And we were trying to find dinner. And mm -hmm. she was asking, you know, what's good? What's good around here? And me being from Atlanta, I'm going to default to chicken wings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I said... You know, 10 to 15 minutes away, there's like a, there's an American deli. They have, you know, chicken wings. Oh, man. Um, oh, that's uh, right. Y'all in Kirkwood. I, I know that American deli. Kirkwood, okay. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, there's chicken wings, there's subs, there's fried rice, there's other stuff. And she's like, <laughs> I love a good wing. Her words exactly. So, <laughs> so <laughs> like, you can't, you can't take you know, a speaker to go get some chicken wings at any other conference. That type of stuff can only happen at the Hue Design Summit. So nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that the summit, you know, is over for this year. Y'all are, you know, have wrapped up and everything. But have you already started thinking about Hue Design Summit 2020? As we were planning this year, I had a lot of notes that I was taking and all of us were taking. There's nine of us in the collective now that we plan on implementing uh, right now. You've caught us in our one month, one month moratorium. So after the summit is over, we take a break because planning, it takes every bit of those 11 months. Yeah. So you take a break. I can go work on my Lego stuff. I can go do some work and everybody else can do the same. And by the time we come back right after Labor Day, we'll come back and discuss um, strengths and opportunities of uh, this year and plan on incorporating that next year, whether that be content, the type of space we're in, um, logistical things, all of that stuff. I got you. So I remember from last year when the event had went on, well, one, because Revision Pass sponsored, I got I to gotta throw that in there. Yes, but, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, outside of that, though, I remember, you know, having conversations, I believe it might have been with with Tiffany last year around kind of getting it out in like the Atlanta design space. And I remember saying, oh, yeah, you should talk to, you know, the folks at AIG Atlanta. But I was also telling her, like, you know, don't be surprised if they don't say anything about it, because that's kind of just like how they are. And mm -hmm. and from what I can tell, at least for Hugh Design Summit, because it's a small conference, um, it's really about like relationships and word of mouth. Like I remember even when we were advertising it on the show last year, I think like y'all were already almost at capacity. Yes. So I was like, yeah, we can tell people to buy tickets, but y'all got like four tickets. But, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, do you always sort of want to keep that same intimate type of, of space around the event? Or, or are you thinking of sort of expanding the concept in some way? We've because of the amount of people that we had in the house, we actually had a very frank feedback session right after Eddie uh, presented. Uh -huh. Um, his, his present presentation was great, by the way. Like I being in a room with Eddie Opara and just soaking all that stuff up was incredible. Mm -hmm. But after that, like we, not only a few of us from the planning team and Jacinda, but a lot of the people, like a lot of the attendees talked about our intentions, but also our fears, mm. right? Like we don't want to get so big to a point where that magic, that secret sauce is lost. Yeah. Like people are coming to the summit for this specific experience of it being a family reunion, a cookout, a camp and a conference all in one and having that intimate feel. So um, we've discussed several models. We've made it clear, you know, we want to make sure that it's also as accessible as possible, not only in price, but for people that are, you know, entry level and want to figure out if design is something they may want to go into. Right. So having the type of content that 
they'll be able to learn from and be able to utilize and also keeping it at a at a scale at which we can still take great care of everybody mm-hmm. is our next challenge. Mm-hmm. So it may not be size, it may be distribution. Yeah. So it's it's one of those we're figuring it out. And as people decide they want to come, I would ask that y'all be patient with us as we try to figure it out because we want to supply all of the demand that comes our way. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember from talking with Shaw uh, during our interview, I was saying something about even like expanding it to like other cities or different types of events. Like maybe y'all do like a monthly meetup or something. And mm-hmm. and the re- reason I'm mentioning this is because let's see. So when, when Sean and I talked, this was July or so of last year. So it was about a year out from when I did this event with Facebook. Well, a little less than a year did this event with Facebook in 2017, November, 2017. And we had about, I'd say maybe about 60 to 75 people there. So it was a pretty good turnout. Like we had some people from Facebook that came and spoke. Facebook catered the whole thing. It was great. But there were so many people there that were asking, when's the next one? Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I'm like, it took four months to do these (laughs) two and a half hours. So (laughs) as far as when the next one is, I have no clue. You have to ask somebody that works at Facebook. They pay for all this. But the black design community in Atlanta is, I don't want to say starved for these types of experiences, but it's very clear when these types of events happen. Like, not only do we show up, like, it's it's almost this craving for more because... They respond. You no, know, they do respond. But, like, there's also just these various intersections of the black design community in Atlanta, which I think is different from what you might see in other cities. So we certainly have, like... The startup designers, mm-hmm. we've got like the in-house folks that are, you know, at a company and they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. We've got student designers. We've got entrepreneurs. We've got like the fine artists slash street artist culture. Like all of these, these black design communities are like passing each other, like ships in the night almost. And so there will be design events that happen, but it's very clear it's only marketed to one or two of those communities, if any, honestly. Yes. And so I think what I like about Hugh is that it certainly seems to be open really for everyone if they know about it. Of course, you know, they know that they can they can show up to it. I remember this sort of similar conversation around the black and design conference that went that still goes on actually at Harvard Graduate School. Yes. And I remember the first year I heard about it was 2015. And I was trying to convince so many people to go. I was like, we gotta go. And they're like well, I mean, what are they going to be talking about? Wow. Like, is it, I mean, is it about Photoshop? Like, I looked at it and it doesn't seem to be talking about tech. Mm. And I'm like, it's a black and design conference. How many black and design conferences have you went to in your career? Let's just go. Yes. The tickets were $50. Like, let's go. Let's just go. And a lot of people I know didn't go that first year. I went that first year because I was like, I, I just want to be there mm-hmm. just to be in the building, just to see what it's like. And That experience was very much like a, you know, I tell people that it's rare that you go to an event as a black designer and you feel both affirmed as a designer and as a black person. Yes. Um, Like there was just this certain level of care and respect for your black personhood. Yes. That I never experienced at a design event ever i mean i've been a design events in atlanta where they've called security on me just for showing up so wow <laughs> so to go to a place like harvard and it's like this warm welcoming experience and and it is in a way like a family reunion because they only have it every other year mm-hmm. so this will be the third year for it that's that's coming up and they have the students put it on and the committee changes every two years so it's always a little different every time you go, but the same people show up. And so it does kind of end up being like this thing where like, oh, I saw you at this thing and I saw you at that thing. Yes. When I went in 2015, it was the year before the National Museum of African-American History and Culture opened. Wow. So like I got to talk to uh, Phil Freelon, who just passed recently. Rest in peace. Yeah. Um, rest in peace. Got to talk to Daryl Crooks who was at the Atlantic at the time. Now he's a associate creative director at Apple, you know, got to talk with the curators at the museum and stuff. And then in 2017, some of those same people were still there, but then there were new people that were there actually more like 
traditional design people were there. Like mm-hmm. some people that I knew were there. I'm like, oh, so now y'all want to come. Now that y'all see this. <laughs> I was like, now that the first one happened, you want to come to the second Jumped one. On so the you bandwagon. Can be- exactly, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, I've been singing the praises of that event like since it's went on. I would love to go. They haven't opened it up for tickets yet. I feel like they have to do it this month because it's in October. Right. It's October. I'm looking at my calendar. Fourth through the sixth. So I feel like it's got to be coming up pretty soon for them to have tickets. And the other thing with them is like, it's also super accessible. Like the tickets have never been more than a hundred bucks to go. And mm-hmm. it's like a, it's a three day event. They do it over a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but Saturday's like the main day of stuff. And then Friday's like a half day. Sunday's like a half day, but even just the fellowship of all the people that are there and everything. I mean, it's, it's great. Those types of events, you know, when I started this podcast and I don't mean to be taking up so much time, but when, no, you're good. I, when I started this podcast, like, I didn't know really of any types of events like this that black designers could go mm-hmm. to. You just you just went to a design event and and you know, hopefully you felt like you needed to be there, like you were supposed to be there, that they didn't yep. look at you like you were supposed to be holding the door or something like that. Yeah. And now there's there's Hue, there's Black in Design, there's Creative Control Fest. I mean, mm-hmm. and then there's even like groups like out in the Bay Area, there's Bay Area black designers. Um, yes. Vernon Lockhart, who you probably don't know. Do you know Vernon Lockhart? Does that name sound familiar? I do not know Vernon Lockhart. So he has this um, nonprofit. He's been doing this stuff for like 20 plus years, probably. But he has a nonprofit called Project Osmosis that helps out young black and brown kids with getting to the like getting into learning about design. I want to say he's based out of Chicago. Wow. Um, okay. I would have to check because I, I, I've been introduced to him. I've been trying to get him to come on the show. I need to reach back out to his camp again. But but now there's like all of these different opportunities and groups and things that are popping up. And it's just yes, it's just so great to see yes. that like we have these events now that can cater to us in many ways that other events from the design community do not. And that's not to say that you know, we can't go to these other design events and go and get the knowledge. That's great. That's fine. But I think we've also all had that experience of going to those events and feeling like the other, you know? Yes. And and yes. feeling out of place and you're trying to like strike a conversation, but nobody really speak to you or no one takes your business card. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I, I still get that at design events today. So like, it's, it's still a, a feeling that's like, pervasive i think yeah there's a level of intersectionality another level that we have to you know deal with Mm -hmm. in those spaces dr tunstall was at the summit this year really Um, yeah i met her at the same conference i met owen and when she signed up i was like oh my god wow (laughs) yeah so she was you know giving me feedback and really talking about you know when we talk about having content for the summit, yeah, addressing those levels of intersectionality in the work, right? Like making sure that all the any discussion or conversation that we have acknowledges those things and we address them in the context of design so that we're addressing, you know, the totality of us that are in the space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she's a design anthropologist, so she definitely knows what she's talking about as it relates Hell to Oh, yes. Wow. <laughs> So it yeah. was like a it was like a family reunion there. That's dope. Yeah, it was it was great. And I think you know to your point about um all these design all these design events that are you know popping up. Yeah. The other goal that I have is for all of us to you know work together, not necessarily put an event on, but at least be aware of each other mm-hmm. and and work to provide the network of experiences to say, hey, if you're not able to go to this, you can go to that. If yeah. you're looking for this, there's something you can go to. If you're looking yeah. for that, that other thing is something you can go to. So I think that would be the next step I see in the evolution of these black design spaces. I mean, I don't see why that can't happen now, just in terms of like, at least sort of like, getting together and talking about it because like it's it's you and the collective with the summit actually we've got coming up in a few weeks we've got an interview with one of the co well there's like a there's like a group of of students that put it on at harvard but one of them will be on the show talking a little bit about this year's events maurice woods has the interact project which is out in yes the bay area yes i know about that uh mm-hmm. marshall shorts does creative control fest which is in columbus yep. 
you already mentioned Jacinda, Jacinda Walker, um, Design Explorer. Design Explorer. Um, I don't know if she's still affiliated with the AIGA Diversity and Inclusion Task Force or not. I'm, I'm not sure if she is or not. But I say that to say that this network is pretty small mm-hmm. in that it shouldn't take that. I mean, look, I'll help y'all connect it together because all of y'all have been on the show. So <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. I'm so ready. if I need to send out an email and be like, look, bang the gavel like let's yes. come to order like i'll i'll yes. make that happen because like this network is small and there's resources that you all have and there's communities that you all are able to tap into that others can't and it just you know mm-hmm. teamwork makes the dream work exactly exactly so just to you know kind of shift gears here a little bit what do you think helps fuel these ambitions that you have i mean the not just the collective and the summit but like like clearly you have this uh i've had this exposure to design for a long time but what helps you or what helps fuel that sort of drive to do the things that you do now well i i I think about a quote from michelangelo i'm paraphrasing but something about you know i bind my soul to the work so i can live forever something like that Mm. i think often about what i'm doing that i can leave behind and not just focus on me but have something to where i have a succession plan like Jacinda's in my head right now she (laughs) talks all the time about succession plans building something that's sustainable and that really reaches back and provides people similar opportunities that I had that they may not be aware of giving people resources to grow in the way they want to grow creatively I also you know I live to create like if I'm not making something or coming up with something then I'm not living so all of these things are born out of the need to make like I'm a maker. Mm. That's what I would say I am. I like that quote. I really like that quote. Who are some of the people that influence you? Somebody that influences me a lot. The work is different, but the ethic is the same. Michael Jackson. That's a really rote answer, but I've been a fan since 2001. Um, Just the craft is something that I've always been interested in and having the attention to detail is important to me. There are a lot of things that I'm responsible for making and putting together. And although people, you know, may give me congratulations and appreciation, like I always see the warts in the thing. Um, so mm-hmm. there are, you know, if there's, if a color's off, if alignment is off, like I can see those things, those tactical things, but also just logistical things like anything that I put my hands on making sure that you know he quoted Michelangelo too like putting putting everything that you have into your work that makes it so that people um, not only appreciate it but learn from it and it lives beyond you all of that stuff is is mostly what I'm putting into Hugh okay Mm -hmm. do you have like a dream project that you'd love to to work on that you'd love to do one day a dream project that I would love to work on I would love to I've always wanted to, you know, build with Lego kind of full time. I would say like doing any types of commissions for experiences and 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 um, locations, just building something and having it stand, having that be a piece of art. It's not necessarily like a a project that I have in mind, mm-hmm. but just I think of I think of my career as like a spider web and not linear. Like I don't. Think about it as I need to go here to get there, to get there is like going up a mountain. Like I have disparate interests. So I may want to be over here on the right side doing some Lego stuff. I may want to be over here on the left, you know, doing Hue stuff. I may want to do some data visualization down here at the bottom, right? Like all of these things are tangentially related, Mm -hmm. but as many ideas as I have to get out, like those are the projects that I want to get out. Have you thought about becoming a Lego professional? I have. I've done the research. I've seen, you know, the process in which they determine who the master builders are. You can go about it different ways. If you want to be a Lego Lego master builder, like you have to go into a room and like there's a pile of bricks. You have to come up with something in 30 minutes out of your imagination. And then from there, they kind of determine what you can if you're in or not, if you pass the test. Mm -hmm. The way that I'm going about it now is building things that aren't necessarily found in uh, the form of Lego and demonstrating my competency there so that people will look at it as, you know, something that is viable, that speaks to specific culture and 
I can hopefully, you know, get some more work out of that. Hmm. So when you, you know, really look back at your career, I mean, you're doing things now with Hugh, you're working at Capital One, you're doing this with Legos. <laughs> when you look <laughs> back at everything, what do you wish you would have known when you first started? What do I wish I would have known when I first started? Like, is there like a, a hard truth or something that you just ended up having to learn that you wish someone would have given you a heads up on? If it if it is, then then it has nothing to do with design per se, but more about like ethic. Okay. I would say that effort always beats talent, like hard work beats talent. So no matter how skilled you are, like somebody can always outwork you. Yeah. That's something that I've learned watching basketball. Like that's that's the saying that actually comes from basketball. So, you know, I was one of those smart kids, right? And then going through life thinking that everything's gonna be this easy. And then getting to somewhere like Georgia Tech, like everything ain't always that easy. Mm. Like I learned, <laughs> I learned how to, I learned how to fail. That would probably be the thing that I wish I would have known how to fail earlier mm. so that I wouldn't have such a, such an expectation of being able to walk in and do things as easy as I thought they'd be. So Georgia Tech really taught me that, you know, as a young adult, but I wish I would have learned that growing up so that I could prepare myself for that experience. So now, you know, now that I've had that, everything else after Georgia Tech is relatively easy. Hmm. Like there's the rigor is not as as uh as hard yeah. um as it was at Georgia Tech. So, you know, work, I can think through that and work through that with relative ease. You know, Hugh stuff, Lego stuff, all of those things I learned from Georgia Tech. But as a youngin, I wish I'd have known, you know, everything ain't going to be as 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 cake as you think it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like, you know, and this is something actually I was talking about this with my mom recently because I was uh, I was sharing with her some the news about the show being in the Smithsonian. And congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I did not mean to drop that as a humble as like a humble. No, brag I, or anything, if you, or if you didn't, I was going to mention it anyway. So. <laughs> I didn't mean <laughs> to drop it that way. Play. No, no, no. I'm, I'm bringing it back around or something. I promise. So I was talking to her about that and she was telling me how like, you know, even like when you was a kid, like everything just kind of like came easy to you. And, and I mean, she was saying it just like in the vein of like, I always had good grades and like I picked up instruments and just learned instruments on my own, like that sort of thing. And she was saying how like the one thing that I remember you really like were bad at and wanted to get better at was with coloring. So like we had a, a local pharmacy and they would have these annual coloring contests. And I was determined to win the coloring contest every year. And like my brother, my brother, my older brother, natural artist, paints, sculpts, welds, draw. I mean, phenomenal artist. I do not have that talent at all, at least not the way he does. Know your strengths. <laughs> and and so i was i was like trying real hard to like get the shading right because i couldn't stay in the lines with coloring and eventually i learned how to get it and learn how to do the shading and all that and i was like winning the coloring contest and she was um she was telling me all this stuff and she's like it was the one thing that i felt like you had the space to fail at and I, I feel like, you know, certainly I think as as black men, I have to say as black people that are listening or what have you, you know, that's not an ability or a luxury, I should say, that we're often afforded. Correct. We have to win. We have to come out the gate knowing what we have to know and doing what we have to do. There's not that space to mess up and then, you know, still be able to recoup our losses and move on. And so, yeah, having that space to fail is something that I feel like we need to have more of just in this industry in general. I mean, whether you come from a, a traditional back, I mean, traditional design background or not, uh, it's, it's so rare that, you know, uh, that you have apprenticeships or internships or anything where you have that opportunity to learn on the job and mess up and, and then be able to use that to move forward. Now it's like, you have to perform like day one, you got to get it. And if you don't get it that first week, you're out of here. Like, it's uh it's something else. Yes. It's short shrift. Yeah. I think just having that space to explore and see where your interests may end up and not just where they are now is important. Yeah. Uh what's next for you? Like where do you see yourself in the next few years? <sighs> what do I see myself in the next few years? I see I see the growth of obviously the Hue Design Summit and the ecosystem around that. 
and having more touch points to stay engaged with the community that we're building. I see the growth of Most Incredible, the the hip hop Lego stuff that I'm working on. Yeah, well, well I want to do a break that. Tell me about this hip hop Lego thing, because I know we, <laughs> we touched on the Lego thing, but I, I just remembered it now that you mentioned that. Um, so a friend of mine, uh, which Alfonso also knows, uh, Sarita Gates, she's from New York and she is a hip hop archivist. She came to me with the idea of, uh, creating hip hop theme Lego pieces. So, so I, you know, being the Lego enthusiast that I am almost 30 years in the game, right? I said, sure. Like I already make my own stuff anyway, so let's do it. So we're putting together replicated forms right now again to demonstrate competency so like your run dmc logo Mm -hmm. your nwa logo things like that but also starting to migrate over into more interpretive and abstract things putting pieces together that either honor anniversaries or themes like right now well right now i'm taking photos of a piece that is uh commemorating the 1989 uh Hip hop Grammy boycott. Mm. You know, as you know, the first rap Grammy was awarded to DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince mm-hmm. in 1989, but they didn't televise it. And so they didn't go. So putting together, you know, a couple of empty chairs that are modeled from uh, the chairs that exist in the Shrine Aud- Auditorium where the Grammys uh, were held that year, and also putting together a model of an actual Lego Grammy. Right. Putting those things together that educate people that may not be aware, first of all, mm-hmm. it's also education for me because I have to go back and look at all the context that goes into putting a piece like that together so that I know what I'm doing. But also making the culture of hip hop accessible through an art form like Lego. Wow. That's really dope. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I just from playing with Legos as a kid, I never would have thought to use them in that sort of way. You know, that's that's really something. Yeah, it 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 transformed from, you know, something, a toy, it transformed from a toy to tool of design to tool of art for me. Yeah. So doing more things with Legos, growing huge. Mm-hmm. Where else do you see yourself in the next few years? I see myself growing more uh, in the UX space. I want to get into more product. I have a fleeting interest in in data viz. Um Alana Washington, who was on the show. Yeah. I've talked to her a couple of times just to get a feel for what what that data life is like. <laughs> so just just really getting more into that realm and learning and working wherever allows me to fuel those ambitions. Okay. Well, Randall, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? You can find out about me on LinkedIn, Randall Wilson II. I'm also on social media at The Rock Files. You can follow Hue Design Summit on all social media at Hue Design Summit. You can also follow Most Incredible at Instagram at Most Incredible Studio. Most Incredible Studio. Got you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Randall Wilson, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, first off, thank you for sharing about the work that you do at Capital One. I think that's really important. Thank you for talking about Hue and about the community um, and really the value that you're adding back to the Black design community with this. I think it's so important to be able to talk to folks while these things are happening because, you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of the same way, I think, with any sort of self, you know, I don't want to say a self-funded, but like, you know, sort of a project that you do on your own it can be very solitary and it can also be very insular. And so oftentimes people from the outside don't really know everything that has to go into just putting out the final product mm-hmm. and they can take advantage of that or they can say, Oh, well, this is, you know, this is bad or whatever, but they don't know everything that had to go into it. So being able to just talk about everything that you all have done and the community that you're building, I think is something super important. I really look forward to seeing the Hue design summit grow year after year Um, and yeah, I'm just glad to have you on the show to talk about all of this. So thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice. Uh, congratulations on 300 episodes. Um, want to see 300, 600,000 more. Um, (laughs) (laughs) congratulations on the canonization of your podcast into the museum. And thank you for allowing me to be canonized on your podcast. Thoughts of love are in And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Randall Wilson and thanks to you for listening. 
You can find out more about Randall and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Maurice Cherry and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you like this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about a minute or so to do, but it really, really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.